while simultaneously held to tighter public accountability, Congress is meant to be the driving force in federal policymaking. Imbalance between the branches has been occurring for many decades, but has reached a peak in recent years with no end in sight. Every week, Americans grapple with new rules from the executive branch, rules not intended by Congress. Today, for example, the Department of Labor announced new rules to govern overtime pay, driving up costs for companies, yet it will be low-wage workers who will suffer the most. Recently, the department attempted to redefine the word fiduciary, requiring more costly regulations in our financial markets. The Food and Drug Administration redefined tobacco to include vaping products, a move that will virtually eliminate a far safer alternative to cigarettes. The FBI has decided to violate principles of due process by not addressing the concerns of many law-abiding citizens who were declined a gun purchase. And dominating the headlines has been the Department of Education's new dictum on bathroom usage in our schools. I could go on and on. Wherever you stand on these issues, they are not the intended products of lawmaking as the Republic has traditionally enjoyed. So today, Chairman Henselin will discuss what is to be done from a congressional perspective and after. Gene Healy will more fully explore what the executive branch has done and the danger an unchecked executive can bring about. I should say, the case for bipartisan action could not be more clear. Republicans, how will you handle eight more years of a Clinton administration? Democrats, is it really the time to continue to surrender power to a branch you could possibly not control? Are you comfortably, are you comfortable ceding this kind of power to a possible Trump administration? Instead of a partisan uprising, it's time for an institutional one. Congress should take back the authority it has relinquished. So let's get started. First elected to Congress in 2002, Jeb Henserling has been an outspoken advocate for economic opportunity and individual liberty. As chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Jeb is a leader in promoting consumer choice, competitive markets, and smart regulation in our financial markets. Further, he has consistently fought to reduce our debt and stop out-of-control Washington spending. He is a co-author of the Spending Deficit and Debt Control Act, a landmark budget reform bill that was heralded as the gold standard of budget enforcement, and he also authored the Spending Limit Amendment, a constitutional amendment that would limit federal spending to no more than 20% of the economy, the historic average since World War II. Uh, the floor schedule is very busy this week, and he will have to leave at the conclusion of his remarks, uh, but, and I'll introduce Gene Healy then. But for now, let's welcome Mr. Jeb Henschelin. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for inviting me here today. I'm always happy to accept uh, any invitation uh, from Cato. And as a struggling student at Texas A&M University many lifetimes ago, I answered another invitation to Cato and actually invested $25 a year as a sustaining member so that I could uh, receive your Cato journal. And as I frequently said, that was honest to God college beer money that I gave up to be associated <laughs> with Cato. So you know about my commitment to the cause of liberty and how I have always appreciated an association with um, Cato. Um, so we are here to explore the question of whether or not the growth of the executive branch is, quote unquote, a loaded weapon threatening our constitutional separation of powers, you need not peek to the end of the remarks to know that the answer is emphatically, unequivocally, and tragically yes. Many of you have uh, heard this story uh, before, uh, but at the dawn of the Republic during the Constitutional Convention at its conclusion, uh, Franklin left Independence Hall and a lady was known to shout from him afar, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? 
Most of you know the answer, a republic if you can keep it. Unfortunately, we have not done a very good job in keeping faith with the founders' vision of the republic, and it remains an open question. Will we be able to keep the republic in an era where the separation of powers has waned? Instead of having a limited federal government operating from clearly defined enumerated powers, we now have a leviathan that has metastasized into the nation's largest creditor, debtor, lender, largest employer, property owner, tenant, insurer, health care provider, and pension underwriter, and the list goes on. Instead of having firmly committed checks and balances, we now have the president's infamous pen and phone. Regrettably, he does not seem to have a copy of the Constitution. Instead of three co-equal branches of government, we have seen the rise of the unaccountable fourth branch of government, namely agency government. Our woeful neglect of America's first principles clearly predates the Obama presidency, and regrettably, uh, the uh, decline has occurred during the administration of both Democrats and Republicans. But there can be no denying that the wounds to our Constitution have grown markedly worse during Barack Obama's time in office, and I would argue is soon to reach crisis proportions. As a member of Congress, clearly I have no more important job or sacred duty than fealty to the Constitution, yet I do not recall a time in my lifetime when the Constitution was more under assault than it is today. Just in the last few years, we have seen our president unilaterally create new law, annul existing law, and even declare the Senate in recess when it was not so that he could install political functionaries into top government positions. Clearly, that whole advice and consent foolishness can be such a bother to a chief executive. The devotees of this governing philosophy of the president's, so at odds with America's founding principles, call themselves progressive, as you know. But as my good friend and our current speaker, Paul Ryan, has said, quote, the ironic thing about progressivism is that it is terribly old-fashioned. For progressives believe only a certain class of people, a class to which they, of course, belong, have the duty and responsibility to hold political power and govern over the rest of us. We must yield to their expert management for our own good because, as one architect of Obamacare infamously said, the rest of us are just too stupid to know better. So, how could we possibly know what health care plan is best for us, what kind of mortgage we need, or how much water we should put into our toilets? To progressives, the Constitution is such an inconvenience. Herbert Crowley, a leading voice of the early progressive movement and co-founder of the New Republic magazine, said as much when he stated the progressive vision of government, quote, legislates without being a legislature, it administers without being an executive, it adjudicates, but without any power of attaching final construction to the law. It is simply a convenient means of consolidating the divided activities of the government for certain practical and social purposes. James Madison in Federalist Number 47 had a uniquely different take on this notion when he wrote, quote, the combination of all power, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. The seed of this form of tyranny was planted during the Wilson administration. It bloomed during FDR's New Deal, became overgrown, 
in LBJ's Great Society and has now reached crisis proportions under President Obama. This century-long progressive expansion of unconstitutional government has unleashed the modern regulatory state as we know it, extremely powerful, exceedingly intrusive, imperiously opaque, baffingly bureaucratic, and alarmingly unaccountable. Now, Congress has not been, regrettably, an innocent bystander during all of this. The stability of our system of government depends upon our representative, transparent, and accountable Congress to make its laws. As we all know, Article 1, Section 1 of our Constitution states, quote, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. Yet for years, Congress has outsourced more and more of its legislative authority to a faceless, nameless, unaccountable bureaucracy. This self-enfeeblement has not only allowed Congress to escape blame when these regulations go bad, it has trampled on the power of we, the people, by giving these Washington bureaucrats huge swaths of power over the lives and livelihoods of our fellow citizens. When Congress allows its authority to be usurped, the people's right to both self-government and due process is undermined. Instead of being governed by the rule of law, citizens increasingly become governed by the rule of rulers. The citizens' right to carefully deliberate proposed legislation through their representatives in Congress becomes reduced to nothing more than a mere notice and comment period where they are permitted to merely lodge complaints and suggestions, all of which the unelected bureaucrats are free to ignore, all of which the unelected bureaucrats may use to retaliate. The result, we now have federal agencies that are legislature, cop on the beat, judge, jury, and recipient of the fine all rolled into one. It is OSHA now, not Congress, that governs over workplace safety. It is EPA now, not Congress, that governs over our air quality. It is HHS, not Congress, that governs over our health care. And most alarmingly, to our economic opportunity and economic liberty, it is the bureaucratic progeny of Dodd-Frank that now rules over our financial opportunity. None of us can afford to lose sight of Madison's famous warning that, quote, there are more instances of the abridgment of freedom of the people by gradual and silent encroachment by those in power than by violent and sudden usurpations. That's why Senator Mike Lee and I joined together and co-founded earlier this year the Article I Project, a network of conservative members of the House and Senate working together on an agenda to revitalize and reconstitutionalize Washington and reclaim Congress's rightful constitutional role. How do we do this? First, Congress must reaffirm the primacy of congressional authority. And, all, and of all the tools we can use to address this, none is greater than the power of the purse. The Article I responsibility is the most potent and effective instrument we have to hold the executive accountable. No less authority than James Madison agrees, as he explained in the Federalist Papers number 58. The power of the purse, quote, is the most complete and effectual weapon with which any constitution can arm the immediate representatives of the people for obtaining a redress of every grievance. To put it a bit more simply, and to paraphrase a colorful federal uh, fellow Texan, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, once you grab a bureaucracy by its budget, its heart and mind will soon follow. Even though the Constitution gives Congress the sole power of the purse, through time we have ceded control of the purse strings on many occasions. From putting over 60% of the federal budget on autopilot to giving federal agencies the ability to spend user fees they collect without going through Congress annually 
past Congresses have made it difficult to utilize the power of the purse. Taking back this fundamental constitutional responsibility is the lion's share of, of, of uh, restoring the constitutional balance in Washington. In addition to reclaiming the power of the purse, Congress must also end <clears throat> the practice of delegating lawmaking authority to unelected and unaccountable agency government. No more passing vague laws that direct agencies to merely fill in the blanks. Besides directly handing over our legislative authority to agencies, one of the ways that Congress uh, has been relegated to the legislative sidelines is through a legal doctrine established by the Supreme Court known as the Chevron Deference. Chevron simply states that federal judges must give deference to an agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute if that interpretation is quote-unquote reasonable, an incredibly low threshold to be met. Through Chevron, federal agencies are able to essentially rewrite laws passed by Congress through the rulemaking process. This is a major part of the foundation of the so-called fourth branch of government, again, which entitles federal agencies to become legislator, prosecutor, judge, and jury. Last month, the Article I project introduced the separation of powers, rest rest let's try that again, <laughs> Restoration Act to restore the balance of power outlined in the Constitution. This legislation, which was introduced in the House by Congressman John Ratliff and in the Senate by Senator Orrin Hatch, would undo Chevron and allow judges to merely interpret the statute as passed by Congress and determine if the agency's action is in line with the laws passed by Congress. What a novel concept to actually allow federal judges to merely interpret the law. In his penultimate State of the Union message, President Reagan reminded us that those three simple words, we the people, make all the difference between our Constitution and the Constitution of other nations. Quote, in those other constitutions, he said, quote, the government tells the people what they are allowed to do. In our Constitution, we the people tell the government what it can do and that it can only do those things that are listed in that document and no others. Our constitutional system of checks and balances and the rule of law are the very foundation of our freedom and our prosperity. Erosion of these foundational principles will inevitably lead to fewer economic opportunities to achieve the American dream. If we're going to protect and preserve the freedom and liberty that make America the greatest nation on earth, we must ultimately defend our constitution. Let us begin the work today. Thank you very much. Um, okay, next we go to the second half here. Gene Healy is a vice president of the Cato Institute. His research interests include executive power and the role of the presidency, as well as federalism and overcriminalization. He is the author of False Idol, Barack Obama, and the Continuing Cult of the Presidency, and The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power. Healy has appeared on uh, many national television and radio programs, and his work has been published in such diverse organs as the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and elsewhere. Healy holds a BA from Georgetown University and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. Gene? Thanks, Peter. Uh, as Peter mentioned, uh, back in 2008, two uh, presidential election cycles ago, I wrote a book called The Cult of the Presidency. And as you can see, I'm not above a little product placement. Uh, the thrust of the book, I think, is evident in the subtitle, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power, 
Uh, it's a problem that remains highly distressingly relevant today. Uh, when I was thinking about a cover concept, I knew I wanted to use the presidential seal, and I wanted it to look like a, uh, a, a bunch of mesmerized tribesmen worshiping a primitive sun god. So you can see how that worked out. The thing with the hands is a little bit of dramatic exaggeration, a little hyperbole. I mean, people don't actually do that when they see presidential candidates speak. Oh, I, well, I guess maybe they do. You can it can hardly have escaped you that it's legacy burnishing season for the Obama administration. The New York Times recently reported that uh, they're making the president available for exit interviews uh, that will, quote, allow the president to showcase his achievements. And at this point, more than seven years in, I don't think it's too early to talk about uh, President Obama's legacy with regard to executive power. Uh, there's a, a phrase that uh, Dick Cheney used to use. He's not the first to, to use it, but uh, it's become associated with him, where he says that our goals uh, in, the, in the Bush administration were to we wanted to leave the presidency stronger than we found it. And they did, uh, and in part thanks to them, Obama inherited an enormously powerful presidency uh, from the previous administration. And uh, lo and behold, he too has, is going to leave the presidency stronger than he found it. Uh, what I'm going to do in the next few minutes, and I think it will, it will be uh, complimentary to some of the things that Congressman Henserling said, uh, is talk about how, uh, put a little flesh on the bones of uh, some of the issues he touched on, and talk about how vastly different the modern presidency, the presidency we're used to today, has become from the comparatively modest, legally constrained chief magistrate that the framers envisioned. What they... Uh, what they envisioned was a system in which Congress would be the first branch, setting the policy direction for the country and exercising the most important powers under the Constitution. I'll uh, discuss that a little bit in the, the first few minutes. Then we'll turn to uh, how that flipped during the course of the 20th century, whose fault that is, the mess we're in now, and what if anything, can be done about it. To begin with, uh, we, we often hear the president spoken of as America's national leader. He wasn't supposed to be anything of the sort. Uh, for the framers, the very notion of national leadership was a dangerous notion. Uh, the Federalist Papers literally begin and end with essays that touch on the dangers of popular leadership. Uh, probably most of you can't read those, but uh, in the first Federalist, John Jay observes that throughout history, those who have destroyed republics began by flattering the people. Uh, in the last, number 85, Hamilton warns that if the Constitution doesn't succeed, we might end up with, quote, the military despotism of a victorious demagogue. So the founding generation really didn't believe in Teddy Roosevelt's bully pulpit. They didn't 
think of the president as a figure that was supposed to go over the heads of Congress, go out on the stump, pound the podium, and rally the masses behind a revolutionary agenda. Instead, the president's role was actually to resist public pressure. Uh, in a small R Republican government, it's clear that the, uh, the, the government is based on the consent of the government, of the governed, so the people ultimately rule. But as Federalist 71 points out, that doesn't mean a, quote, servile, servile pliancy on the part of the, the president. Uh, he wasn't supposed to bend to every sudden breeze of popular passion. He was supposed to withstand temporary delusions in order to give the, the people time and opportunity for more cool and sedate reflection. And the framers didn't subscribe to this notion first associated with Andrew Jackson that uh, the president as the only nationally elected official is, uh, has a, is the direct representative of the American people with a, uh, a special right to speak for them and in their name. If anything, it was Congress that had the superior democratic pedigree. Compared to the, the, the chief executive or members of the judicial branch, it was Congress that was more immediately the confidential guardians of the rights and liberties of the people, as Madison put it in Federalist 49. And despite the, the prevalence of this phrase, co-equal branches, in large, in, in, in great respects, they're not co-equal. Um, there's a reason that in the architecture of the federal city, Washington, uh, Congress looms over the president's house, a reason that, that Congress's powers come first in Article I. In a Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. And Congress's powers, uh, on paper at least, are clearly superior to the president's. It establishes the structure of the executive branch, the rules under which it operates. It can, Congress can create or abolish agencies, remove department heads, and even through the impeachment power, get rid of the president himself. President does not have anything like reciprocal powers allowing him or her to control and discipline Congress. In fact, when they looked at this assortment of powers, the framers worried uh, about Congress overwhelming the executive branch. Madison uh, talking about the uh, uh, the state governments in, in the uh, post-revolutionary era uh, wrote in Federalist 48 that the, the legislative department is everywhere extending the sphere of its activity and drawing all power into its impetuous vortex. Uh, and as he goes on to explain in, in number 51, one of the reasons that they divided the legislative branch uh, into separate houses was to make it harder for legislators to gang up on the president. And they fortified the president with, among other things, the veto as a defensive weapon against congressional encroachments. In fact, as originally conceived, the president's powers were mostly defensive. Uh, very few of them were unilateral, uncheckable powers, with the pardon power being one of the few exceptions. Uh, a broad uh, in foreign policy, the president had the power to, quote, repel sudden attacks, as Madison's notes from the convention make clear. Um, 
but he didn't have any uh, authority to launch sudden attacks, to wage war on his own, non-defensively. Uh, and at home, Congress was the prime mover on national policy. The president was mostly, mostly there to take care that the laws were faithfully executed and to slap Congress back with the occasional veto whenever it uh, traduced its constitutional boundaries. Well, the modern presidency is a different creature entirely. The shift toward the, the president as prime mover in American policy starts during the progressive era, and from FDR on, the trend line only goes up. By the mid, middle of the 20th century, it was the executive's impetuous vortex that you had to worry about sucking up all the authority in the political system. Presidents had uh, increasingly acquired the power to essentially rule by decree through executive orders and other unilateral directives. Uh, most famous of those uh, probably is Executive Order 9066, uh, through which FDR authorized the internment of over 100,000 innocent Japanese Americans. Uh, another striking example, Nixon's wage and price controls, where in 1971, through an executive order, uh, using power unwisely delegated to him by Congress, uh, essentially took it upon himself to uh, take control of what every American from the CEO of IBM to the guy at the local car wash, what they could charge for their services. But almost routinely in the modern era, you see presidents exercising powers that were formerly thought to be more associated with uh, imperial figures. Uh, in Federalist Number 69, uh, Hamilton had gone through this extended comparison of the president's powers with those of the British monarch just to show that the president was nothing like a king. And one of, the, one of the examples he points out, he says there's a great inferiority in the power of the president because, among other things, the British king not only appoints all offices, but can actually create offices. By the end of the uh, 20th century, though, it, it was getting pretty hard to tell the difference. Uh, presidents could create offices just as much as kings could. Uh, the, the political scientists William Howell and David Lewis note that presidents have unilaterally created over half of all administrative agencies in the United States without specific legislative authority or appropriations. They've used the power of the pen to design these agencies in many cases in ways that maximize presidential control over them. And this includes not only uh, minor agencies, but some of the most significant bureaus and departments in the federal government, the NSA, the DEA, BATF, OSHA, FEMA, uh, all instituted by presidential unilateral directive and later funded by Congress as a fait accompli. And when the president acquires this ability to uh, spawn a new agency or issue legal commands, it becomes extraordinarily difficult for Congress to overturn those commands. The uh, Congressional Research Service reports that uh, congressional repeals of executive orders are relatively rare in, mo in modern times, primarily because legislation repealing those orders 
would could run counter to the president's interests and therefore would may require a congressional override of a presidential veto. So what you see is you, all of the procedural hurdles that the framers set up to uh, force deliberation and consensus on matters of national policy, all those hurdles when the president strikes out on his own and sets national policy now stand in the way of Congress undoing what he's already done, which turns the Constitution on its head. Well, how do we get here? Uh, what caused this transformation? Was it large structural factors like America's rise to superpower status, compl increasing complexity of the global economy, uh, changes in broadcast technology that gave the president kind of a, an electronic bully pulpit? You can look to all those things. Those are all good answers. The fact is there's no one answer. Uh, trying to look for a single cause uh, of the growth of executive power is a little bit like uh, trying to explain America's obesity crisis through a, a, a single cause. It's, are we fat because of high fructose corn syrup or supersized portions or because we watch an average of five hours of TV a day? Yes, all of those things. Uh, a similar process has gone into the growth of executive power. But it's important to, besides structural factors, to also uh, consider ideological factors. Ideas have consequences, and the ideas that uh, Americans have had about the presidency have driven presidential growth. Uh, Congressman Henseling, uh, quite rightly pointed to the progressives of the early 20th century as uh, key culprits in the transformation of the presidency. Um, but I want to, uh, without going into a lengthy intellectual history on the subject, uh, I'd just like to say a quick word about conservatives' share of the blame in the transformation of the American presidency. Um, believe it or not, uh, conservatives uh, at the beginning of the modern conservative movement were the original skeptics about activist presidencies and broad use of executive power. Uh, I have a section in the book uh, called How Conservatives Learn to Stop Worrying and Love the Imperial Presidency. It talks about how uh, back in the day after FDR's 12-year reign, it was conservatives in Congress who uh, pushed through the 22nd Amendment limiting presidential terms and how most of the intellectuals who originally co coalesced around Buckley's National Review were skeptics of activist presidencies. They associated strong presidencies with new deals, new frontiers, great societies, and other things they hated. Uh, in 1964, Barry Goldwater denounced the current worship of powerful executives as a philosophy totally at war with that of the Founding Fathers. And he was right. But by the early 1970s, uh, political analysts uh, began to talk about the emerging Republican majority in the Electoral College, the notion that demographic and political shifts would lead to the, conservative, the more conservative of the two parties having, if not a lock, a better than even chance for going forward to win the presidency. And conservatives liked the sound of that. 
by the first Reagan administration, uh, they had, uh, if not before, they had warmed up to the idea of the strong presidency, and they developed a legal theory, unitary executive theory, designed to uh, maximize the president's powers within the executive branch. Initially, the idea was that power would be used for good, to ride herd on the bureaucracy and rein in the regulators. But it turns out that power works both ways uh, when, the, when the presidency changes parties. By uh, the second Bush administration and in the wake of 9-11, unitary executive theory began to stand for a host of ideas uh, that are far more controversial. Uh, and less defensible, that the president simply by waving the fl bloody flag of national security can over override legal prohibitions on torture, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and other laws validly passed by Congress. Which brings us to where we are now. During the Bush era, a lot of conservatives seemed to believe that you could have a maximally powerful presidency ab abroad, uh, an imperial presidency when it came to national security policy, but you could confine the guy and have a, a nice constitutionally limited chief magistrate at home in purely domestic issues. Uh, but by Bush's last 100 days, the poverty of that, that idea, I think, was pretty clear. You have, uh, in his last 100 days, in the midst of a financial crisis, President Bush using TARP money to bail out auto companies a week after Congress voted specific authority for that down. And you have Obama, in his first term, using those newly expanding power, expanded powers to fire the CEO of General Motors, and otherwise reshape the auto industry in a way that coincident coincidentally uh, also rewarded some of his political allies. In his second term, as you're more than familiar with by now, boasting that I've got a pen and I've got a phone, uh, he's increasingly governed by unilateral directive at home in areas ranging from education policy with Common Core to uh, implementing large parts of the failed DREAM Act uh, by executive fiat and, uh, through, and in the area of environmental regulation. A pen, a phone, and a drone uh, would, would complete the sentence because by the time President Obama hit the dais at Oslo, to uh, accept the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, he'd already launched more drone strikes than President Bush carried out during two full terms. Since then, number 44 has racked up nearly nine times as many drone attacks as 43, launched two undeclared wars, and as the President bragged in a speech on the Iran deal last year, has bombed no fewer than seven countries. All of this has rested on the most brazenly flimsy legal theories, like the notion that the 2001 authorization for the use of military force against al-Qaeda and the Taliban uh, sort of has a permanent life to it, that it delegated Congress's war powers to the president in perpetuity. The Army Chief of Staff said last year that our latest war in the Middle East against ISIS will go on for 10 or 20 years more. 
So that, I guess that means that in, say, 2032, when we're all filled with the, to the brim with excitement over the impending presidential contest between Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump, we can rest assured that the winner will get to use the September 2001 AUMF as the basis for her presidential kill list. This is not how a constitutional democracy is supposed to work, and it's something that really ought to worry us. You know who is worried about the growth of executive power? President Obama, surprisingly. Uh, during the run-up to the 2012 election, Newsweek reported that in discussions with his advisors, President Obama had been heard to worry about, quote, leaving a loaded weapon lying around for future presidents to wield, hence the title of this event. Uh, the president's right to worry about that. His potential successors seem eager to pick up that weapon. Hillary Clinton has said she'll go as far as I can, even beyond President Obama acting unilaterally on immigration and using presidential directives to stop headquarters from, uh, from corporations from headquartering abroad to avoid taxes. Uh, when asked on Meet the Press about uh, executive orders, Donald Trump has said, I won't refuse them. I mean, Obama has led the way, to be honest with you. But in case you're worried, he's made it clear that he will only use executive orders to do the right things. I'm going to do a lot of right things, he, he, he finished the thought. There's an old screenwriting principle uh, that says if you introduce a gun in the first act, uh, it's got to go off in the second. And unfortunately, unless and until Congress does something about this, re reclaims its proper constitutional role uh, and it's, as the first branch of government, uh, we may be headed towards playing out that script. Thank you.